Hello, and welcome to Cecil Radio, Episode 5, a chance to talk through various questions about implementing the new accounting standard Cecil. I'm Susan Weber, a 26-year banker and first wave Cecil adopter, and with me today is Lindsay Francis and Josh Clark, now I want to get this right, from Barry Dunn's Commercial Group Technology Assurance Team. Woo, that's a mouthful. Welcome, Lindsay and Josh. (laughs) Thanks, Susan. Thanks, Susan. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining us um, and into the Cecil conversation today. I have been so excited for this episode. We have talked about it in prior episodes that this was coming. And really, this is to help folks demystify something called SOC 1 reports and SOC 2 reports. Um, But before I start lobbying all these questions your way, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Great. So... Josh and I have a bit of a fun fact where we both started at the firm the same day, almost 10 years and one month ago. So that's amazing. Yeah, it's been <laughs> a little over a decade now. Um, wow. So we, we both do work in, on the same team and SOC reports are the bulk of the work that, that, we, that we do. Well, and I also want to say SOC, meaning S-O-C, right? Yes. Not S-O-C-K, not Red Sox, it's and not SOC as in Sarbane-Oxley. Right. This is S-O-C, and we'll we'll get to that all in just a few few minutes. Great. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Josh, was there anything you wanted to add? Well, to piggyback on that, so Lindsay and I are both senior managers, Um my focus is a little bit more on the technology side of the of our compliance work that we do. Okay. Um, Lindsay is definitely the expert on all things banking, while Excellent. mine is more on um, compliance around the SOC 2. So I will be focused on SOC 2 discussion. Well, um, and this makes you guys a perfect pairing, right? Because this right. is Cecil is that intersection of um, banking and technology for sure. Go ahead, Josh. Sorry. I was just going to say, you know, I like to, you know, like to joke that I've known Lindsay for longer than I've known my wife. Oh, um, no. So <laughs> her and I go back, like she said, a decade of working together. So we make a good team. Well, that's great. And you saved, you both were so, you're so wonderful um, guests. You already know that I was going to ask you for a fun fact and you both (laughs) offered them up. I don't even have to go there. So we're going to just jump right on in, right? So um, I I did want to mention, you know, I have worked with Lindsay on a couple of projects. Um, Josh, I met you through Lindsay, so I'm so happy that we did that. And really, um, you both have expertise on writing SOC 1 reports and, and thinking about how software, you know, those software and technology considerations. And so because of that work you've done, it also makes you really great at analyzing what's in them and, and helping banks understand what they should and shouldn't be looking for. So that is where I would like to take these questions today. So my first question is, Let's just define what a SOC 1, right? So SOC-1, let's just define what a SOC 1 is. Um, How would you, you know, many CECL adopters are working with vendors who have developed their own models or their own software uh, for making reserve estimations. um, And often auditors are interested, you know, do they have a SOC 1 to cover some of this? So Lindsay, maybe start with you and talk a little bit about what a SOC 1 is. 
Of course. The primary purpose of a SOC 1 is to report on internal controls over financial reporting. So the primary reader typically is a CPA firm who is performing the financial statement audit for a particular organization. In this example, if they're performing that for a bank, they want to read the SOC 1 of the vendors that the bank is using to help understand whether or not the vendors' controls are robust enough to rely on during their financial audit, or do the financial auditors need to do additional testing around certain controls because they're not sure that they can rely on the vendors' controls. Well, you know, that's, um, I really appreciate that background in this because I think this is a real, um, this is a real point of interest for many banks. Like what does a SOC 1 report typically, what kind of assurances is a SOC 1 giving you, you know, as a bank or as somebody who's interested in reading it and what is it not covering? And, you know, I tend to think of it a little bit is, uh, you know, helping us understand what is happening in and around the vendor's process and model that, um, kind of uh, takes it out of the black box a little bit, right? You know, how do we know that what they say they're doing and how they're doing it is is what they're doing <laughs> when yeah. we don't when we don't have perfect insight into what it is that's happening over there? Absolutely. And just because a vendor has passed, you know, their SOC 1 audit, there aren't any findings, that does not mean that the readers of the report are going to get answers to all of their questions. You have to really know what to look for. And so let's stay with that for just a, a minute. Um, what are some of the things that, you know, you might advise people? Because I know banks will often um, have individuals in their organizations who can read SOC 1 reports and, and should be reviewing or responding or reacting to them. So what are some of those tips and tricks that you might share with somebody who's in a position like that about what they should be looking for and documenting? Absolutely. So especially in this particular example where we're looking at vendor CECL modeling software, looking at those software controls, um, that's pretty important as far as being able to determine whether or not the firm who performed that SOC 1 audit, did they test specific software controls around development around you know data integrity if you put in one plus one is the output two or is the output two and a half you know those kinds of things mm -hmm. um, and that for this particular um, example is where the the SOC 1 and the SOC 2 do overlap now, what about things like, um, you know, would a report like this contain things that would say, this is what we as the vendor are responsible and have for and have controls around, and these are what users, right, or in this case, the banks should have, this is what they should be responsible for and have controls around. Could you speak to that for just a minute? Absolutely. That's another overlapping quality between the SOC 1 and the SOC 2 is okay. that vendors most of them are going to specify you as a user of our system you need to make sure that you have controls xyz in place because we can't control what you're doing 
um, some of those controls often are around access, right? So it's not the vendor's responsibility to make sure that the bank removes users from the system. That's the bank's responsibility. Okay, great. So I really think, you know, when it comes to SOC 1s, one of the things that I, I, I think would be good to just uh, make sure that people keep in mind is that this can be a really helpful insight for your external auditors to review as part of their assessment of your CECL implementation and adoption. Um, seeing how you have, you as the bank have looked at it and reviewed it and what things have come up for you as part of that review that you've commented on or noted is a helpful component as well. So it seems like this is squarely in that governance and control um, section of implementing something new. Absolutely. Okay, great. So let's move on to SOC 2 because we've alluded to it on a number of times and Josh, you know, we'd love to hear, you know, from you maybe define SOC 2, tell us a little bit about what its purpose is and why it might be important for 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 it in this kind of um, situation. Yeah, so to take a little bit of what Lindsay was talking about in the SOC 1, talk about the differences between a SOC 1 and a SOC 2. Um, it's really around purpose. Uh, as Lindsay pointed out, the SOC 1 is tailored to report on internal controls over financial reporting. The SOC 2 is designed to report on internal controls over security of a system. The SOC 2 is designed for a service organization that stores, processes, or transmits any kind of customer data. Uh, these companies are data processors cloud providers, software as a service providers, infrastructure platform as a service provider, and data centers. List kind of goes on and on. So what happens if you have a vendor who is has developed a model, but in fulfilling that model, they also have vendors, right, that are involved in this process? Where would we see that information and sort of assurances around that relationship? Would it be in the SOC 1 and the SOC 2 and both? I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, so in a, in both the SOC 1 and SOC 2, uh, in an auditor's report, uh, there should to be defined subservice organizations where okay. they have to list out, um, here are our subservice organizations that we use as part of the design of our internal controls. Uh, so that okay. might be a, a data center host or a um, company that is responsible for um, the change management portion of their system. Uh, things things like that are that are technically part of a control environment that they're now relying on other vendors to do for them has to be defined within that okay. SOC report. So it's kind of like if I were building a house and I hired a general contractor right, to build the house for me, and then they subcontract out to all of these others. It's that relationship with the general contractor that I, as the bank, right, in this case, am looking for, and then what assurances he has that his subcontractors are working the, in, in a consistent way with what we what we agreed to. Is that kind of the way I'm that hearing is, it go? That is a good way to put it, yes. <laughs> Excellent. And I guess before I get too much further, I should clarify that SOC 1 and SOC 2 reports are a type of audit. So they are usually performed by an accounting firm or an auditor, right, on behalf of the vendor, in this case, um, uh, whose, you know, model or systems or security is being audited. So, um, so definitely squarely in the auditing world, right? 
yes. auditor to auditor. We love to see these reports. Yes, definitely. And, you know, to jump in a little bit more into the SOC 2, um, the, an easy way to explain a SOC 2 is that it's designed for those service organizations to demonstrate to their customers that they're keeping their sensitive data secure. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not only secure, but safe. That the customer data is available to them and they want to use it. Uh, that the data is accurate. Going back to this, to the one plus one equals two. Mm-hmm. That's confidential. And that there's data privacy safeguards that are in place. So, what uh, would you say to a what would you say to a bank that says, "Well, I got a non-disclosure agreement and that handles my confidentiality." What would you say in terms of of that relative to SOC one, SOC two work? I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> or what counsel might you advise? You know, do, what what are you really gaining that's different in those scenarios? One of the things that the AICPA has really been pushing um, auditors to confirm is vendor due diligence and vendor management. Yep. Um, so I would say that just because agreements are in place doesn't necessarily mean that the controls that you would expect to be in place are in place. So a SOC 1 or a SOC 2 and data protection side of the house um, provides insight into what that company is actually doing um, to secure the data or to ensure that the data is processing correctly. I got it. So maybe whereas a non-disclosure agreement is the I promise Mm -hmm. component, the SOC 2 says, and this is how. It's more the evidence, right? Yes. This is how I'm doing it and how I know that 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 you can be reasonably assured that it's being done the way that I promised. That is correct. Okay. All right. So uh, that that sounds really great. Um, Lindsay, anything to add to that? Well, I was just going to say it always makes me think of a, uh, you know, auditors are famous for saying the line trust but verify Mm -hmm. and your NDA is you're trusting that they are doing what they're saying they're doing. But without that audit, you can't really verify that it's the case. Yeah. Well, that's really very helpful um, insight. So thank you for that. so talk a little bit about um, bridge letters, right? So very often when we have a SOC 1 or a SOC 2, um, auditors will also often ask banks for bridge letters. What do we even mean by that? So the bridge letter for either a SOC 1 or a SOC 2 should be coming from the organization being audited. Okay. So let's say it's XYZ Cecil modeler. Yep. And they typically have an audit through December 31 each year that was issued, you know, let's say sometime in February. Well, if the bank has a year end, let's say that actually ends June 30th and they want to know what has changed between the date that that audit came out in February to June 30, the bridge letter is the you know xyz company's way of saying nothing has changed between february and june everything that was tested in that report still is valid we haven't changed controls you know every once in a while you'll see a bridge letter that says we made a process change you'll see that reflected in next year's audit just a heads up but most of the time they're saying 
absolutely nothing has changed. Next year's audit will look exactly like this year's audit. That is a really important point. So just to recap, if somebody is looking, if a bank is looking at a SOC 1, let's just use that as a, this example, a SOC 1 report, and it essentially says this is good through December 15th of 2022, and they're a CECL adopter that has an effective date of 1-1-2023, they're probably going to want to have a bridge letter to bridge that time frame between December 15th and when they actually adopt. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes. Yep. Yeah. And so those bridge letters come directly from that vendor to be That's able great. to say, we haven't changed any of our processes. You can expect the same controls are still in place and acting appropriately. So what happens if a vendor, um, in this case, a, a, a CECL model developer or software provider that a bank may have contracted with to help them with their CECL estimate, what happens if they have neither a SOC 1 nor a SOC 2? Um, what should bankers be thinking about in those situations? So sometimes we see relationships form where the particular vendor doesn't have an audit yet. And sometimes, you know, the bank or whomever the organization is has decided that they accept that risk and want to take on some testing on their own where they develop you know, a, an expectation of, we anticipate if we give you this data, you put it in your software, one plus one should equal two, and they try that and do some testing out and can verify that way. Yep, it looks like your software is doing what you say it's supposed to do. It met our expectations. We're comfortable enough with that testing um, to move forward. Um, it gets difficult if you aren't able to develop your expectation because then you're just crossing your fingers and, and hoping that it's doing what everyone thinks that it's doing. Um, but it, it, testing on your own is an option if the vendor is, is willing um, to compromise and, and be a part of that kind of scenario. So this is a really important point and um, I think I might just uh, add to that, Lindsay, in this way, and that is, um, you know, if if you've got something complicated, right, if you've got a very complicated, um, CECL in many respects is complicated. There's lots of assumptions. There's layers of assumptions. Sometimes um, some of the information it needs in order to run is coming from multiple vendors, right? And if those vendors um, don't have a SOC 1 report, over what it's doing, right, for this one plus one to equal two, then there, to your point, there's some additional risk that bank management is taking on by saying, that's okay, we're going to be able to test it and say that we're comfortable. And I would dare say that a lot of bankers in this space are thinking, well, this is the whole reason I went to a vendor because I don't know how to do this myself or I choose not to because I don't have enough resources to pull it off in the time and in the way that I want to. Um, so in those cases, um, maybe this is where model validation comes in, right? Sometimes you can contract with a third party model validator to help management gain that confidence and insight over um, some of this re-performance. What are your thoughts on that, Lindsay? Have you seen that definitely in the space? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you, you, you do want to get someone involved and it sounds like there are really three avenues, right? Uh, and 
a CPA firm to perform a SOC 1 or a SOC 2, a CECL model validator to help bank management do it, or the bank management themselves can decide to take on that kind of a project, although you're absolutely right. That's certainly not an easy undertaking to do that kind of testing, um, especially if time and resources are, are tight. And the reason that this has come up so much in the CECL space, I think, is exactly that. And that is that there is a large um, expectation around uh, validation that bank management is doing, either doing it themselves, and it has to be independent and robust. And there's lots of um, regulatory uh, information out about that. It's uh, supervisory guidance that was instituted by all of the oversight bodies, and it's called um, model risk management, right? It's a uh, supervisory guidance on model risk management. There's a whole section on what the expectations are for validation. Um, there's no specific requirement that CISO models be independently validated, but particularly when there's no SOC 1, right? It can be extremely helpful and important when banks are not really able to dig in and have and um, have the resources available to do that uh, on their own. Yeah, Excellent. absolutely. And Excellent. something that we've noticed just in the industry as well, most vendors who are doing work with banks understand, you know, this kind of audit standard of having some kind of independent validation, typically a SOC 1 or a SOC 2 that banks can rely on. So that um, that's certainly a, a, a good trend that has been set. Excellent. That's wonderful. Um, so how often should we be seeing a SOC 1 or a SOC 2 report be issued? Is this something that's done annually on some sort of set schedule? Is it okay if it's done once and then unless things have changed, everything's great? What kind of schedule should we be seeing for this work? So typically, most organizations are having a SOC 1 or a SOC 2 annually, but some organizations go for an audit every six months. Mm -hmm. And that's perfectly okay too. Um, something that is, can be a little bit unreliable is if you have a SOC audit once and then, you know, it's multiple years before you see the second one. You just kind of wonder what's going on over there. Have they changed a lot of processes? You know, are they going through um, any issues and they didn't want to include that? Um, you're, you can't really be sure. Maybe they, you know, changed ownership. Maybe there's something else going on. But as far as, you know, consistent and reliable, you would definitely want to see at least one a year. And if they decide to do two a year because they like a six-month period instead, that's absolutely fine as well. That's really great. Thank you so much. I can't thank you both enough for being here. And I just, um, I want to make sure that we are able to talk to people about how they could, what resources they have and how they could maybe get connected to more of this conversation if they, if they have any questions. We haven't asked the advisor function, which that feature will, will post along with the uh, podcast, but are there any other resources uh, out there for where people go for help? Absolutely. You know, we are always happy to help answer questions. Um, we perform SOC 1 and SOC 2 audits all the time, and we're happy to help answer questions about, you know, hey, I read this organization's SOC report. I have some questions. It seems like the testing 
covered everything? Did I miss something? Or, hey, I don't see a lot of software control testing. What do you think? We're, and we're always happy to help answer questions. And maybe even if um, if a vendor is confused about uh, SOC 1, SOC 2, maybe referring them to a firm that is able to perform those services like what you and Josh do, um, maybe an avenue where they can offer some help. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. Well, I think before we uh, wrap up today, I just want to um, finish with a rapid fire Q&A. Are you ready? Yes. All right. So both of you have to answer this, not at the same time. Okay, Lindsay, favorite summer activity? Sailing. Josh, waffles or pancakes? Waffles. Josh, favorite sport? Hockey. Okay, I'm not gonna ask you for your favorite team because that could be a little, um, we could have some conflicts here. So <laughs> hockey it is. So you must be completely bored right now in the summer. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a baseball fan too, though, so that oh, at least good. gets me through the summer months. <laughs> All right, and Lindsay, favorite ice cream flavor? Oh, something totally loaded, like, you know, 10 different things going on in there. Oh, I love it, like Moose Tracks or yes. any of the Ben & Jerry's flavors, right? Yes. We'll put a plug in for our neighboring Vermont folks yes. here. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Josh and Lindsay, this has been a lot of fun talking about something that can seem very daunting and technical, and you made it very accessible. And so thank you so much for being here today. Thank you thank for you, having Susan. us. So join us next time when David Stone is going to join me for a conversation on the elimination of trouble debt restructures and the new loan modification disclosures.